Psalm 87. This is the word of God. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Sinners and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. We love this hymn, uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. And yet, what are the glorious things that we're to have in mind? What are they? Well, we can see, for example, that Psalm 87 is really a filling out of one of the details of Psalm 86. Psalm 86 says that all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And we see already in our, our quick read through Psalm 87 that it is a missionary psalm. It contains a missionary vision which turns those promises of Psalm 86 into praise, into a doxology. For here, God predicts, promises, not the destruction of his enemies, but their conversion. God's missionary heart. And at the very heart of that is his church. So I want to look at this psalm in, in really three sections. And first of all, the first three verses, that it's God's glorious home that is in view. And then we will look at God's glorious family. And, and then finally, your glorious renewal. God's glorious home, his glorious family, and your glorious renewal. As mountains go, uh, Mount Sinai was no great mountain, but it was God's favorite. I, I reflect on a story that I've told you before about a, a little mountain called Mount Batty that overlooks Camden Harbor. This is Maine, uh, not uh, New Jersey. Camden Harbor with the, the, the pristine village there, the pristine harbor, and the schooners that lie at rest in that beautiful harbor, and the mountains, uh, or the, the islands around. And I think in my mind of a picture of my own father, as, as he, has, uh, he has three of our, my siblings on his various body parts, shoulders and head, and the, and the iconic tower of Mount Batty in the background, and it is, it is a favorite place. It is a favorite place. I've climbed that little mountain easily 50 times. But this past summer, my daughter Nikki and I climbed Mount Magundacook, which is right near it and, and behind it. And as we're looking down from the peak of Mount Magundacook, we could hardly even see that little bump, that 180-foot mountain uh, of Mount Batty. 
We looked down on it and it seemed very insignificant. And that is the attitude that the people in the neighboring areas had towards this great mount which had, on which God's favor was resting. The neighboring mountain scoffed at it. You call that a mountain? In Mount 68, this is what we, in, sorry, Psalm 68, this is what we read. Many peaked mountains of Bashan looked with hatred at the mount God desired for his abode. And so it is today that people look at God himself or they look at his church. And in the world, God is seen as weak and insignificant. His kingdom is seen as, as non-existent. And yet, what makes this hill of holiness, as our psalm says, what makes this hill of holiness so glorious and so special? It is just that God loves it. And God wants to live there among his people. You see, it is not the mountain, but the city on the mountain. And it is not the city on the mountain, but it is the people in the city. God sets his love on his people. And it is not that we are flawless people that deserve his favor, but we have a, we have a flawless Savior. And that magnifies God's glory. As he has set his love on flawed people, that glorifies his righteous name. There's another great passage on election that's, that, that helps us strip away any sense of boasting or any sense of deserving that we might have by being called God's people and those on whom his favor rests, that, that hill of holiness, that city that God blesses. Deuteronomy 7 says that God chose you not because you were more in number than other people. In fact, you were the fewest. God set his love on you. Listen to what Deuteronomy 7 says. God set his love on you for you were the fewest. God set his love on you because you were the fewest. His heart is gravitating towards those few and weak people. Do we get that? Do we understand that? That our beauty doesn't win God's love. He loves us despite our ugliness. Seeing God's greatness is not our deepest need. Rather, it is seeing his goodness. And we are amazed at that in this psalm, that, that God loves to live with us, not just in heaven, but he loves to live with us now in our flawed state. We are part of God's dwelling now, as Ephesians 2 tells us that we are that dwelling place of God. We are that new temple, that one new man, joining together Jews and Greeks, building that precious, holy place where God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. So God is glorified by being at home with sinners now. While we are on our way to glory, God is glorified being, by being at home with sinners now. You see, it is not because of your progress that God loves you. It's you. And it's not because of the improvements that you make that God comes along behind you and pats you on the head and says, now you're making progress 
and finding my favor. No, it's because of you. He loves you. So often we allow the feelings of our, of our, to our feelings to rule our hearts rather than allow God's heart to rule our feelings. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. God's glorious home then, as we have been connected to Jesus and brought into fellowship with God himself, as we've been formed into that people and into that holy temple, God's glorious home. That's the first thing we celebrate when we sing, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. You are the dwelling place of God. Now, not just later, but now. The second thing that this psalm shows us is that those glorious things include then the various people that God grafts into his family. We are, uh, we're, uh, verses uh, 4 through 6 refer to God's glorious family. Let me read that again. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people. This one was born there in Zion. It glorifies God to bring uh, the most unlikely people into his home. It glorifies God to bring even enemies together in unity and in peace. It glorifies God's name to save the unexpected. Those are the glorious things of which we sing, glorious things of thee are spoken. That this passage says, God says, they know me. They've come home. The, the reference to Rahab there really is, is referring to Egypt. Egypt, which enslaved Israel. And, and then there's Babylon, which captured Israel. There's Philistia, Goliath's people, you remember, whom Israel could never dislodge from the land. They were always those, those, their current enemies. And there is Tyre, uh, those wealthy people nearby, who often oppressed Israel. And then there was Cush, Ethiopia, the faraway neighbors. And God says, these five representative peoples are all the ones who now have his name. They've been called into the family. They were born in her. And so we should expect God to bring enemies home into his church. But God, that's, I think God is, is so glorified in the ministry of Richard Gardner, we love to, to pray for them and support them. And he has what are called, um, they're described as MBB, Muslim background believers. They have a focus on that, on that people group, among other groups, but a focus on the Muslim community and the glory of seeing people rescued out of darkness, brought into life at great personal risk and risk to families and risk to the church. It glorifies God for those who were once enemies to be brought together into the church. Given, uh, given equal status and equal affection because this, the, they are all native-born. 
Uh, notice again, verse 4 speaks of this one from the nations born here. And, and then verse 5 speaks of this one from Zion was born here. And then verse 6, with breathtaking um, and bold mercy, uh, Psalm 6, they together, uh, Gentile and Jew, are ones whom God has recorded and he registers the peoples. This one, without distinction, this one, Born here. Equal status. Equal affection. The New English Bible gets this very well. It says, Zion shall be called a mother in whom men of every race are born. For Jesus has brought down that wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, between black and white. And all of the distinctions we're aware of in this day. One new man. The people of God. His new dwelling place. I want to make a couple of points of application about this, about this glorious family. And the first one is is just reflecting on my own sadness as as I think about the poverty of what we identify as dispensationalism. I'm not saying that dispensationalists are not Christians. I'm not saying they're not part of the body of Christ. But part of their belief is, is very disturbing and, and, and sad, and I think poverty-stricken. Because one thing we know from the New Testament is that everything in the New Covenant is more glorious than what is contained in the Old. Everything is more glorious in the New Covenant. And could there be anything more glorious than different peoples, once enemies, Different peoples being joined together into the church of Jesus Christ. A new temple, a new and living temple that is built for the sacrifice of praise to the power of the gospel of reconciliation. And yet dispensationalists will replace that beauty of those who were once enemies united in Christ. And they would bring back the old sameness of God's eye being on, in some special way, on Israel. And then of all things, the interest in having a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. A brick and mortar temple, instead of a living temple, brought, made together, constructed out of enemies who are now rejoicing in the glory of Christ. That, that to me, is a, a shocking reversal. Of all that the New Testament leads to, that vision in heaven finally, where all the nations are brought together and their glory is still displayed in their uniqueness, not in their sameness. That's the first thing. Praise God for the gift that we have to be a church built together of different kinds of people. The second thing is this. It is the church that is God's answer to racial unrest. You might put it this way. The world is looking, very busily looking, in all sorts of places to find things that are truly glorious. And that is people living together in peace. And that is fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. The nations, the peoples are united in peace and love in the glory of God. We need this vision. And we need to display this vision in front of them 
the church is a place where people of different backgrounds, of different, different colors, different nationalities, uh, found together, united in Jesus Christ. And our differences uh, bring, bring glory to the Lord, and, and, and so we value them. And we expect to learn from people who are not like us. We are able to, to celebrate our diversity within the unity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give an example from Civil War days. This day, in this day and age, we see Confederate statues just falling all over the place. Uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, just countless, countless, uh, hundreds and hundreds of statues uh, coming down. And there is an appropriateness to that in one way, and that is they were heroes of a way of life that was built upon the backs of black men and women. And I want to mention something about Robert E. Lee as a slave owner himself. Um, God is glorified in enemies meeting together in Christ. And with all that is wrong with that southern way of life, if we can put it that way, there is also redemption right in the middle of it, even in the life of Robert E. Lee. Uh, after the Civil War, um, he went to a church that was very much in architecture, very much like the, the Pittsgrove Presbyterian Church down, down at the, in, in, uh, in, in Daretown. Uh, a church that had, uh, had uh, those, uh, a bottom floor that, that had those boxes that people would pay for so that they could have their little fireplaces in there and keep themselves warm during the winter. And, it, and that was reserved for, for white people on that main floor. And then in the balcony was where, was where the black people sat. They were welcome to come to church, but they needed to stay in their place. And on that particular Sunday, uh, there was, uh, the Lord's Supper was being offered. And, and Robert E. Lee came, was, which was in it, part of their practice. He, he left his area and he came up to the, uh, to the communion rail and was about to receive the elements. And then he stopped. And he looked up at the black, uh, the black people in the balcony. And I'm not sure how he communicated, but he signaled for one of the men, one of the black men from that community to come down. And they had communion, the elements of the bread and the wine together, representing black and white. Even with the Confederacy having lost, a big enough Christian, if I can put it that way, to then welcome this black man into, into fellowship, at least in the church. What a testimony for people today to see white and black, once very much at odds, united in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for the third thing, it's then also seeing these are among the things, the glorious things which are spoken of God. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. The other, the, the final one here is that it's a place of great renewal. It's a, great, a place of great and glorious renewal. I want to think, us to think about that for a moment. How great, in your view, is the renewal that the Holy Spirit has wrought? Uh, we may look around at people and can even give up on the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. We think of some unbelievers 
whom we've spoken to, prayed for, shared the gospel with, and they still seem so dull, so self-absorbed, and so unmoved by the gospel. And sometimes, giving up on God's grace, we'd give them up as if they were dead. But the life-giving Spirit raises the dead. Well, we could also look at believers. We look at some believers and we say, I don't really see them as capable of change. And we may give up on them. We may give up on ourselves, seeing so little change over the course of time. But the life-giving Spirit heals the broken. Signs and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. And we think of uh, from another psalm, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I love to sing that. The, The streams making glad the city, the, the church of Jesus Christ right now. Celebrating the renewal, the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to think about what the scripture says about that, that, that the power, the Spirit bringing irrepressible life. The Spirit bringing from death an irrepressible life. Think about that in two ways. First of all, the new life and the renewed life. The new life, first of all, then the renewed life. It is God's heart uh, to do the impossible. I think of uh, think of Ezekiel chapter forty-seven. So much going on there, but the water that flows from from underneath the uh, out the door of the temple it, it it runs down towards the sea and and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper as it runs down to the Dead Sea. But but this is what it says as as it runs through that desert area, trees spring up all around it. Trees that bear fruit 12 months out of the year. And then it runs into the Dead Sea and it makes the Dead Sea fresh where where fish once again can live. And then the leaves that that those trees bear, those leaves are, are bring healing, even as is referred to in Revelation. These leaves healing the nations. What, what do we see here? We see the Spirit bringing new life in impossible places. Don't forget that. The Spirit bringing His life in places that you see as, as dry and, and destitute and dead. That's where the Spirit works. I want to tell you a story of an, an Arab man. He grew up in an Arab country. And he was raised from the time he was a little boy to hate Jewish people and to hate Christians, to consider them both lower than pigs and dogs, and actually was taught in his family to pray against them, to pray that they would die. He was raised from before he could say a word to despise Christians and anyone who was not Muslim. They would be considered atheists, infidels, and they should die. Well, he went to an English-speaking country where he was all alone. Uh, There were very few Muslims in that English-speaking country. And he felt more and more alienated and, uh, um, and distressed because of this. And yet there was a Christian man who pursued him, who would not say no, 
who, who, di- betray, who displayed kindness to this man's family, he would not be stopped. He brought food when times were really rough. At one point, he even donated a car to this young man's father. He saw an amazing part of a heart of a Christian. What was even more amazing to this Muslim man than those acts of kindness was the way that he prayed. Keep in mind, this is a young man who grew up praying for Christians to die. And this Christian man led him and prayed for this man's family. He prayed for God's gracious care and blessings on the family. And it got to the point where this man was drawn and received an invitation to go to church. And he went into this Christian church where Christ was being honored and praised and people were dropping to their knees in adoration of Christ. And his heart was melted at the love of those people and the adoration that they had for God. And he finally came to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit working in impossible places to bring life to the dead. Do not despair of anyone whom you're praying for these days. Do not despair. Keep at it. Well, this man did become hated by his family. He was disowned by his family and it was partly on him Uh, Partly on him, because he brought the same arrogance that he had as a Muslim into his treatment of his family, which obviously didn't go over very well. But remember what I said, the Spirit is unstoppable, and the Spirit brings not just new life, but renewed life. So the Spirit began bringing healing Uh, that healing of that spiritual aloe plant to the rough edges of this man's heart. And in his gentle way, Jesus massaged the harsh, proud parts of this man's soul. As harsh words often harden the hearts of the hearers, so gentle words can often gentle them. And so for this, for this Muslim background believer, not only was, did he become new, but he was renewed in his attitude and his gracious and now humble response. God used that to soften the hearts of his family members. And so your words, now gentle, are like spiritual aloe in the wounds of your loved ones. The second verse of this hymn, See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all our fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace, which like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. This, uh, this psalm also points us to the beautiful 
and the perfect life that is coming. When the true Zion, the city of God, comes down to earth from heaven, and heaven and earth are one, we will see the beauty of Christ. We will see his glory. We will see our own glorious future. And even now, that vision and that hope renews our divided hearts. Seeing who you will be gives you hatred for today's pettiness. This is the vision that God has for us. This is the vision of holiness that God has for us. That we would desire, not only Christ our bridegroom, but we would desire to be this bride that is clothed with righteousness and beauty. This is from Revelation. The city now, the city now is coming down like a bride dressed for her husband. And this from the scripture. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Did you, did you see that? It is the city coming down, now being pictured as a bride, and she is sharing the glory of her Lord, sharing the glory of her groom. And when you see that beauty, you grow more and more opposed and, and, and hate that indwelling sin that remains in you. You do not want to be that person anymore. You want to be that heavenly bride. Listen now to the, the last verse of our, of our hymn. Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Ha, but what do I have? Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you for this glimpse tonight of the glorious things that are spoken of of the city of God. The glorious things that we have as your people of being one people, diverse but one. And the glorious renewing of the Holy Spirit bringing dead people to light, to life, and renewing our lives as well. Lord, let us sit on this. Let us reflect on it. Let us allow our hearts to be changed by your glorious Spirit as we marvel at your glory made manifest even in our own hearts by your grace. In the name of of Jesus we pray. Amen.